you for joining us on Three Women, Three Ways. Special show this week because I have some very special guests. Barry Goldstein. Hello, Barry. Welcome. Hi, Heather. Nice to speak to you again. Nice to have you on the show again, Barry. And Marilee McLean. Now, both of these folks are advocates, uh, former attorney, authors. Uh, they they have their chops, and they know uh, whereof they speak when it comes to domestic violence and courts. And that's exactly uh, why I've invited them on the show today. I don't know how many of you caught a CNN show uh, that was broadcast in November, beginning of November. Um, I think a lot of times, and Barry, you can correct me if I'm wrong, I think a lot of times we think that if people just know about some of these egregious situations that occur in court, um, if, with child custody or in domestic violence situations, if people just know, if we could just get publicity, if we could just get the word out, everything would be wonderful. People would understand. But sometimes that thinking can go really wrong. And I think this CNN show is a case where it did. Barry, tell us, bring us up to speed, if you would, about what was this show with Lisa Ling? It seemed to be a show... Um, strongly influenced by what they call father's rights groups. I call them abuser rights because that's more accurate in terms of what they're trying to accomplish. And basically, she interviewed fathers who had a complaint with the court system and only fathers. She didn't check what they were saying by looking at the other side. She didn't balance it with all the mothers who were mistreated by the courts. She didn't interview experts who, you know, could have um, focused on the research to help explain what happens most of the times. You know, it's possible some of the fathers who were complaining had legitimate gripes. they, They could have a case that's the exception But what Lisa Ling wanted to do was assume whatever the father said was accurate and that that's what's happening all the time. And, you know, they believe that the courts favor mothers, even though the research is very clear that there's widespread gender bias against mothers. And, you know, there are just all these horrific cases of children being murdered, children being raped. Um, courts giving custody to um, dangerous abusers. And, you know, the research supports that. It's not just the mother saying it. Um, But she just did a one-sided show. Yeah. And, you know, you I, I don't know whether you knew this or not, but my undergraduate degree is in journalism. And I wrote I, I was a reporter for a long time, both uh, in broadcast and in uh, print. And that's just lazy journalism. I think anybody who bills themselves as a journalist and doesn't seek out both sides of a story before reporting it, that's just lazy journalism. And it, it offends me, not just because of this particular topic, but because of any topic where a journalist, especially somebody um, uh, with the uh, prominence of a CNN show, um, that's just lazy. That's inexcusable in my view. If I could just but, mention... You know, um, a few years ago, Garland Waller, who's a professor of communications um, at Boston University and, you know, a really leading expert in this field. um, 
she wrote been a on chapter. Show, yeah. yeah, she wrote a chapter in uh, my book with Mohanna um, about the failure of the media to cover, you know, the scandal in the custody courts. And one of the points that she made was that the mainstream media would not consider a story unless they could get both sides to speak, which meant that if an abuser got an unfair advantage in court and the mother was complaining, all the abuser had to do was refuse to participate in the show, and that was the end of the show. And here, they didn't even attempt to get the other side. Well, not only did they not attempt to get the other side, but they didn't do their homework. As you mentioned, study after study, uh, uh, um, you know, I mean, my gosh, Joan Meyer's study, um, I mean, there's just innumerable uh, studies that have come out that show, show that this is pretty egregious. And yet this show chose to focus on some rather vocal and I, I don't know why. Well, yeah, I do know why. I do know why these fathers get sympathy. Everybody wants to have sympathy for the underdog, and the notion is still there that somehow or other courts love mothers and they hate fathers, and so the fathers make a big stink about it. They're abusive fathers, not normal fathers. And so the media wanted to jump on that. CNN wanted to jump on that, and it produced a show that was totally, wholly inaccurate. Marilee, are you with us? I sure am. I sure am. Okay. What's, what's your take you on this? Can comment on that? Oh, I, I have to say I was so upset that I couldn't even breathe. I was watching it, and it was like my heart was in my throat. And I thought, my God, what a poor investigator, what a poor job she's doing. Because um, I know CNN covered my story years ago, and they did an exceptionally good job. And they investigated, I mean, thoroughly. And so what she did was so, such poor journalism that I, I just thought, oh, I couldn't hardly watch it. I made myself stay in there and watch it, but it set us back 20 years or 30 years. I mean, that's like, um, you know, she didn't even think, I mean, it was just so one-sided. And I actually even talked to Barry the next day, and I said, oh, God, Barry, I'm sick. I was sick over it. Uh, all the hard work we've been doing all these years and trying to move this cause along and really show them what's really going on is, Women are losing their children to abusers in epidemic numbers, and she just took it the wrong direction entirely. And then I couldn't, at one point she said, I'm, I'm a feminist, and, and I thought, feminist, my, if she was a feminist, she would have investigated this and not just jumped in. There are fathers that get screwed. We know that. They get a horrible, horrible things happen to them in very minute numbers when it comes to these kind of cases where there's abuse going on. This is really an outrage, and I'm still furious over it. Yeah. Um, and we have not, I mean, we've seen this before. I mean, just say Dr. Phil, it makes my skin crawl when it comes to custody cases and abusive divorces. Him, yeah. yeah. I mean, it, and these people get such traction, and people who are not familiar with the situation, who don't take the time to look at the research, who don't have any personal interest uh, vested in these kinds of stories, just believe what's out there, and I think that's what makes these kinds of stories even more egregious. Let's talk. Well, and the judges, of- yeah, they're the, the, the judges that really do not know about understand domestic violence or child abuse, as we well know, how a lot of these cases are going, and she just verified for them that they're doing an okay job. It's all okay. What's going on? 
that was really sad well, too. She didn't bother to contact any of the myriad of, of adult children who grew up in these situations. I mean, they, there are organizations out there, I, you know, of these uh, uh, children who are now adults who are saying, yeah, this was horrible. This happened. I was placed with this abuser. I was done, you know. I mean, it's not hard to find people who have lived these stories. Let's take, uh, you know, let's kind of go through it one by one. Um, Barry, can you tell us the background? Of what, who's, what, what did she, what approach did she take in her story, in her coverage of this situation? Well, it, it looked like she was looking for, um, you know, a story that would essentially be man bites dog, you know, the opposite of what most people understand. And so she needed stories, and where she went was to the abuser rights organizations who were happy to provide this kind of misinformation. And she just accepted whatever the men told her. Um, And, of course, we don't know in an individual case if what they were saying is true or not. We do know that if what they were saying was true, it's the exception. Now, for many years, I have taught a batterer class, and we generally don't allow the men to tell their stories because we have no way to check it. And if they were an exception, that's not helpful in understanding domestic violence. We don't want to talk about what happens 2% of the time. We want to talk about what happens 98% of the time. This show by Lisa Ling, as I pointed out, is not, it's not unique. We see this so frequently. Um, and I, I don't understand how this perception that, oh, the poor men, the courts love the women, women always win, and the poor men are abused. In light of all of the coverage that we've had of, uh, you know, egregious cases, you know, cases in Michigan, cases all over the country, uh, where horrible things have happened to the to the the children and to the mothers in these cases, um, oftentimes I'm I'm in Washington State. We we have a case here where you know the the child the small child was sent to live with dad who immediately moved in with his father who had just gotten out of prison for pedophilia, you know, and that's the environment in which that poor child was raised and uh, after being taken away from a perfectly adequate mother, um, this happens so frequently. How can you know, if you can't get coverage from a reliable, supposedly reliable source like CNN, what can we do? Well, if I could just, you know, go back for a second. Um, I really think that we're starting to make progress. CNN was an exception. In the last couple of years, we have started to get the mainstream media doing some really good work to expose the scandal. Um, The Boston Globe did a wonderful investigation, um, I think led by Nestor Ramos, who followed a child who had been sexually abused, and the court court gave custody to the father, and they they looked at the um, 
both Child Protective and the courts and how they failed. The Washington Post, um, they, they did an editorial supporting the Battered Mothers Conference. They did this really good story by Kara Tabachnik about the bogus reunification programs, and they did a whole bunch of stories about the um, Prince Ram's murder, among other um, stories. Um, and we've had um, ProPublico has done a number of things, and a hundred writers, and there have been more like that recently. And I think the reason for it is that the research is now so overwhelming that the media feels more comfortable exploring this topic. And I can tell you, you know, from people, from reporters who have contacted me, that there's some more stories in the pipeline. So, you know, it's that context where CNN suddenly, you know, did the opposite and suddenly, as you correctly pointed out, you know, violated every journalistic norm. Have you had any response from CNN about this? I know that there's been a lot of um, uh, follow-up and uh, blowback from people who've listened to the show, especially people who have been uh, who are aware of what's happening out there. Have you guys heard of any response from CNN because of uh, this follow-up? I haven't gotten any. I don't know if Barry has, but I haven't heard back from anybody, and I, I hit him pretty hard. You know, we sent the emails. And some of the mothers mentioned that we they called, they sent emails, and I haven't heard anybody who got any kind of response. And I, I guess it's not surprising that they would be defensive when, you know, as we said, they've really violated all the journalistic norms. It's really not something that can be defended reasonably. And and trust me, there's no one as pious as a journalist who thinks that she did a great job, <laughs> despite the fact. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I, I can see that. Um, but I'm surprised that um, CNN hasn't reached out or offered to follow up with a, a story that shows the other side. Um, that's surprising to me. Um, so, you were okay, hoping for that. So, pardon? Yeah, yeah, well, you know. Um, and I'm surprised that, you know, feminist Lisa Ling hasn't reached out, uh, quite frankly. I would think that uh, she'd want to do that. Um, okay, let's go back to exactly what they covered. One of the things that I find is that, you know, if you Google domestic violence, fully, fully quarters of everything that pops up is father's rights stuff. How did this become so prominent? How did the poor daddy stuff become so prominent? It's been prominent for a long time, and I think it's more of the government funding of the money that goes into father's rights, and then I think it is, you know, the women that are getting so beaten down and are financially depleted and emotionally depleted and have been in abusive relationships don't have the strength to fight the way these fathers do because they're the abusers. Well, they don't have the strength. They don't have the resources either. Um, no, no. And, and you know, and, and uh, homage to my, my good friend, Karen, Dr. Karen Hoffer, um, you know, mm-hmm. <clears throat> women go through these, these, these horrific traumas, first with the abuser and then it repeated in court, 
Um, and they come out of it with PTSD and chronic anxiety and acute, dis, you know, uh, depression. They, be, they come out of it with disabilities that are actually recognized by the Americans with Disabilities Act, and yet they're not treated as anyone disabled. They're treated as crazy people. They're treated as pains yeah. in the neck, um, which just exacerbates all of the, the trauma that they're going through. So they're just being re-traumatized, you know, uh, in, uh, at the risk of sounding redundant, re-traumatized over and over. Um, and the men, these abuser rights groups, are so prominent. Are we, are we talking about basic sexism here? What, why? Why is this occurring? Well, I mean, certainly sexism is part of it. But you might take a look at the issue of the um, cottage industry of professionals that help abusers because that's how they make a lot of money. And, you know, if we understand the context here, most custody cases are settled more or less amicably. Most of these cases are parents that love their children, and they settle usually the mother with custody because the mother is the primary attachment figure and the father wants what's best for the child rather than what's best for him, and so they reach a settlement. The problem is about 3.8% of all custody cases that go to trial and usually far more. These are overwhelmingly domestic violence cases involving the worst abusers, men who believe that she has no right to leave, and they are willing to do anything, including harming children, in order to regain control. And they understand that the best way to hurt a mother is to hurt her children. And so since these are domestic violence cases, domestic violence is about control, including financial control. So in these contested custody cases, most often it's the abusive father who has the family resources. That means if you're a lawyer or you're a mental health professional and you want to make a lot of money, the best way to do that is to use approaches that favor abusive fathers. And that has permeated the court system in all sorts of really negative ways. You know, one of the things from Joan Meyer's pilot study um, that came out that I found most interesting is that bogus alienation theories that are not based on any research that have been debunked over and over again have far more influence over family courts than important research like Saunders, which comes from the U.S. Justice Department, and Adverse Childhood Experiences, which comes from the CDC. Saunders and ACE are about the health and safety of children. Um, Alienation is a fairly minor issue that rarely has a major impact, but it has far more influence in the courts because, you know, 20 years after ACE, six years after Saunders, the courts still, for the most part, aren't using these vital tools to help them understand these abuse cases. 
Well, and just for the benefit of anybody who might not know what this whole alienation theory thing is, um, basically it was come up with by a, a, a bogus psychologist back in the 80s who made a fortune going to courts uh, advocating um, all sorts of weird stuff, and uh, in, including pedophilia. And um, he came up with this idea that if, in a divorce, in a contentious divorce, if the kids do not want to go see daddy, Somehow or other, it didn't apply to if the kids didn't want to go see mommy. But if the kids didn't want to go see daddy, there's only one explanation for that. And that is mommy must be poisoning their little minds, and therefore mommy needs to be punished. And we punish mommy how? By taking away her children and giving her to the poor, poor, beleaguered father. Um, I don't know, you know, as somebody who raised a couple kids, I don't understand how anybody doesn't understand that kids don't want to go around people who are mean to them. Uh, people that threaten them, people who make them uncomfortable. Somehow or other, that explanation for why kids didn't want to go see daddy never made it to the forefront. It had to be mommy's fault. And therefore, I come back to this whole sexism thing, you know, that, um, you know, it seems to me in court, moms have two roles. Either they're crazy or they're evil. And that's the only way that court personnel tend to see them. Am I oversimplifying here? Well, remember that in the 70s, when domestic violence first became a public issue, we had no research. Popular assumptions Mm -hmm. were that domestic violence was caused by mental illness, substance abuse, and the actions of the victim. So the courts, which didn't really want to handle these cases anyway, turned to mental health professionals as if they were the experts. All of the assumptions that I just mentioned turned out to be false, but the courts Mm -hmm. have continued to look to these mental health professionals, and they include the cottage industry that are unqualified because they're not familiar with research, but they just use, you know, approaches that help them make a lot of money. So you have judges and lawyers spending their entire careers hearing all this misinformation over and over again. And so you're certainly right that sexism plays a big role and alienation is a sexist theory, but the role of the cottage industry is another big part of that, and Richard Gardner was the the founder of the cottage industry. Yeah. And Gardner dealt with more along the line lines of parental alienation syndrome than parental alienation. His syndrome was around, based around children that had been sexually abused. And if they'd been sexually abused uh, and the mother was bringing that forward, then she was the one that was condemned or, you know, she wanted the courts to put gag orders on these women to shut them up, jail sentences, put them in jail for a while. Um, he had his whole theory plan. Now, parental alienation came off of his theory parental alienation syndrome, which is debunked. There are parents that alienate, but that's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about abuse, and we're talking about parents that are using alienation as an abuse weapon. That's what these men are using when they go into court and they say the woman's alienating them. It reverses everything that should be happening. And that cottage industry that um, Barry's talking about, there's a lot, a lot of money involved there. I try not to go into the money because we really need to stick with the fact that the abuse is going on, and it's safety the child comes first, and that is not happening in any of these cases. That's the problem. Yeah. 
Um, and I also forgive me. I, you know, I do consider myself one of the last last of the living, breathing 1970s feminists. But I gotta say, I think we shot ourselves in the foot. I really do. I remember back in the late 70s and early 80s where, no, you know, everybody wanted fathers to stand up and take responsibility and be fathers. And so the mantra was dads can be just as good a parents as moms. And I think mm-hmm. that when these judges make these decisions to give custody to a father, they are congratulating themselves with how liberal they are seeing everything, the, the, uh, how liberal and e- equally they are viewing parenting. When in fact, as you point out, Barry, maybe normal fathers are, but not these abusive fathers. And so we kind of, we, you know, the feminists, um, kind of, you know, conditioned these decision makers, these judges, to think that they're being equal, that they're looking at things through equal eyes when they're granting custody to a father. When in fact, they're granting so much more custody to these abusive fathers than ever was granted to women. Uh, and any yeah, and that goes to the 50 thing, too. You know, if, if, if I could, you know, one of the problems here is that this is a complicated subject. And, you know, it's easier for the abusers to come up with a, a solution that is simple, basic, and wrong. Um, and when we try to explain it, if you know, like we could say, well, it's, this or that, but it's many different things. And I just want to offer something that um, some really good judges said who were interviewed for the Bartlow study. They said they believe many of their colleagues are aware that there's a lot of fathers that um, abandon their children. And so they believe their colleagues bend over backwards to keep even dangerous fathers in children's lives, you know, because they think that's beneficial. And, you know, I don't want to suggest that's the answer. What I want to suggest that it's one of many answers. And, you know, there's all different flawed practices, and they all tilt the court in favor of fathers and against protective mothers. But that's not well, just judges, Barry. That's, that's custody evaluators, that's social workers. Yeah. That's a general thing around all of them because everybody's trying to say now that, you know, we have fathers that are stay-at-home fathers. And we want to, you know, now if a father comes in and wants to be in child's life, man, that's great, you know, because of what it was like maybe in the past or whatever. Those are the cases that parents are working it out, like you discussed earlier. They're trying to do what's best for the child, and they work it out. We're talking about contested custody cases where there's abuse going on, and these judges are still looking at it. Let's do 50-50. Well, that just makes it easy for them mm-hmm. work-wise. They don't have to do any work. And secondly, if you do 50-50 automatically, you're handing over these children to abusers. I believe personally, and I, and I think most people should maybe believe like this, that if you're raping or hurting a child and you're abusing a child the way these abusers are, they lost that right. They don't get 50% of the time. They lost that right when they parent in that way. They don't deserve that. Child. And yet, nearly politically, um, you know, I mean, the whole fathers' um, initiatives and the whole, you know, the funding that you mentioned earlier in the program. There's actually government funding for a father who wants to fight for custody. Is there any government funding for a mother who wants to fight for custody? I no, there is so. no motherhood.gov. It's only fatherhood.gov. 
Yeah, and so somewhere we were sold this bill of goods that fathers were crucial to children's lives. Well, you know what? I think that a good father is crucial to a child's life. But I think if you're a crappy father or a crappy mother, you're not why, – why should you be involved in that child's life? You're going to do more damage than you're going to do benefits. And yet we have this exactly. notion that no matter how bad a father is, to know well, what genius and isn't it amazing, Heather, when these um, judges rule to give these fathers custody, you know, even though they know they're not sure this is going on, they're, you know, but there is, there's evidence. And in most of the cases I deal with, these women have evidence coming in showing the abuse of their children. I had a case last week that was absolutely phenomenal, horrible, horrible case, and lots of evidence of abuse. And her boys had to go back to the abuser. She's lost them now because one hour a week, and she has to fly to Boston to see her children. And it is so shocking to me that a system can continue to fail the way it does because if you or I were raped, Heather, that would go into criminal court. But these children being raped by their fathers goes into family court. The best interest of the child is the parent that's more able to nurture the relationship with the other parent. Well, guess what? No woman is going to nurture that relationship with a man when he's raping or hurting her child. So that is not going to work. That's scandalous. And in fact, if Child Protective Services is involved, the mother is told, if you don't keep this man away from your child, we're going to take your kid away. So either right, way, it's right. a lose-lose. So you go back to the, the crazy lady or the maniac. You know, that, that seems to be well, the only role. Believe, in- they don't believe it anyway. They don't believe the abuse anyway. They tend to not believe the abuse. That's just kind of yeah. a, a stigma, well, a myth. Because they perceive that you have told a whopper here, because, of course, Daddy wouldn't be doing that, then we're going to punish you. And yet, oh, we hear over and over again how, how fathers can be in jail. Fathers can be, they, they, the child can be a product of rape. And still, the courts bend over backwards to give these fathers access and decision-making ability when it comes to rearing that child, even if they didn't want the child to start with. Even if they don't, you know, I mean, I find it, and of course, I, you know, I started the program, before we started the show, I, I told Barry, I said, I'm cranky today. You can tell, can't you? <laughs> <laughs> You can tell that I'm well, on a rant. Anybody um, cranky but, after you saw Lisa Lang's program, that would make anybody cranky going through this. When you see that after you've been working as hard as you've been working and for many years as you've been working on this and trying to get this message out there and what's happening to women all across the country in epidemic numbers and to have somebody come on a uh, CNN program, Lisa Lang, and do that job, that's all I'm going to say she did, I was just appalled, absolutely appalled. Yeah, so that doesn't help our yeah. our cause or well, what's happening and, to all these women. And, and it, it offends me as a journalist and as a feminist. It really does. Because that, you know, I mean, being a feminist doesn't necessarily mean that you always take the woman's side over the man. That's not what it means. What it means is that you give it a right. fair shot. You you approach things from a sense of equality, not from a sense of privilege. And so as far as I'm concerned, you know, CNN missed the boat on that one, uh, you know, and, and on both of those arenas. I want to go back to the show just a little bit, um, and, and just for our listeners who didn't catch the show, can, can you give a synopsis of, of who the people were that she interviewed, Marilyn? You know, it, one, I, I, one gentleman stood out. He was a father that was, um, never married the woman. Um, she got pregnant. Uh, she promised that she would keep the father in the life of the child, that when he goes for visitation later on, as the time goes on, she does not have him in the 
certificate of, as a father. He's not a, a put out as a father. So now he has to kind of go, he has to go to court to try to win some time or get kind of amazing because, um, you know, that is a sad story. And, and I, you know, don't doubt for a minute that that's a good father. Just watching him on there, he was a good father. But my gosh, the percentages to what I see every day, the thousands, and I get calls all week long and from all over the United States and internationally. And to hear this one poor father, that's nothing compared to what these women are going through. They do, they go through labor. They give birth to these babies. That bond is so extremely important. You don't break that bond. Now, I'm not saying fathers aren't important too. They are, but not in those young ages. Those mothers are extremely important. And you're handing these children over to abusers. And these fathers, everybody found there was two or three of them. One guy was on there. He was, like, yelling about feminists and how disgusting these women are, and they're going to bring up the Me Too movement, and they're just on and on, just very, very hateful. And I'm thinking, oh, my God, I couldn't believe she even put him on because he was obviously one of the ones that pushed this program through. But I, I was listening to him, just, just even hearing him and the way he was talking about women and mothers. And I thought, oh, my gosh, this is unbelievable. And then the Me Too movement, they're just going to come after us. Well, there were some people that put things out on the Internet, and I, I noticed you should have seen the father's rights attacking these women. I, it was absolutely unbelievable. And so just that show, there were maybe three people, three fathers with, with you know, having a problem, having visitation, or having to pay a lot of money or whatever. Yes, it does happen. I never would deny that happening. And I don't hate men. I, I am a feminist, but I love men, good men. Good men that want to stand up for children and want to stand up for what's right and not abusers. And you, all these men are going together. Most of those guys are abusers, and she just pulled it right out. She just, she just fell into the abusive thing. She fell right into it, hook, line, and sinker. Well, you know, one thing that I learned about abusers is that they're very good at getting people to be sympathetic for them. Oh, sure. They're not they're just a psychopath, sociopath. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, they're they're good at really drawing on people's sympathy, um, which is kind of uh, amazing, really, when you think about it. Uh, you know that how they can how they can manage that. You know, um, but but they do. That's one of their little skills. And they kind um, of arrest behavior at a young age. Yeah, yeah, and I think that um, I, you know, from from my perspective, I think Lisa Ling just got suckered into that. Poor me, poor me. Um, and I think she thought she was doing God's work, you know, by doing the show. Yeah. I, that's the impression <laughs> I had anyway. That you know what I'm saying? I have a hard time swallowing. Yep. Yeah. Okay, Barry, correct me if I'm going off on a rant here. Um, I, I think you're upset about something that you have a reason to be upset about. And, and I think, you know, fundamentally, abuser groups are trying to make out the dispute as something between mothers and fathers and that they should be treated equally. The reality is that the dispute in the custody courts is between good mothers and fathers who want children to be protected versus a small minority of the worst abusers. And if we understood what the dispute was, it would be a lot easier to understand whose side to take. And I think there's yeah, a tendency right. to create a false equivalency 
between protective mothers and abusive fathers. And I think that's one of the reasons why the ACE research is so helpful. Because if instead of trying to give our opinions, we talk about how does the behavior of the father impact the health and the longevity of the child, and how does the mother's behavior impact the child. And then you can get an objective understanding of why the protective mother is so much more important for the child and how, as you said before, Heather, the father the father's involvement, you know, is more harmful than beneficial. It's not that there isn't a benefit, but that the harm he causes by his abusive behavior um, is great, is so much more harmful than the harm of denying a child the father in their life. And that what the courts ought to be doing is focusing on changing the abuser's behavior if he wants a relationship with the child instead of pressuring the mother and child to, you know, have a relationship with the abuser. Yeah, but how successful are we when we try to change abusers' behaviors? Um, I can no. tell you about that, you know, because the the research is clear. We're not we're we are not doing well. Um, mm-hmm. The only thing that changes abusers' behavior is accountability and monitoring, which is the opposite of what the family courts are doing, and too often the opposite of what the criminal courts are doing. But the thing is, we know how to change this. And I know you and I discussed this when we did a show about my Quincy Solution book, because based on the best practices in Quincy and Nashville and San Diego, we can dramatically reduce domestic violence, but we need to use best practices. And, you know, one of the practices in Quincy was to make it easier for victims to leave their abuser. And what the custody courts fundamentally do is make it as difficult as possible for her to leave her abuser. Yeah. Well, and in fact, you know, I mean, the age-old question is, why doesn't she just leave, you know, from people who don't understand this whole issue? And oftentimes she doesn't leave when you, you know, everybody else thinks she should. Because of the children, if she's with that, if she stays in the relationship, she has hopes of protecting the children somewhat. Whereas if she goes through the divorce, those kids are going to be given plenty of time with daddy to do whatever he wants with nobody watching, um, with nobody to to shove them behind her and, and, you know, get put herself between the abuser and the kids. And um, so it, it does. It forces many women to just stay in, in horrible situations. Um, and, it, and it, some it, of the women who choose to stay for that and other good reasons don't survive that decision. Absolutely. Yeah, sure. Absolutely. How, and what, you know, you pointed out in your article about how often these children are actually um, uh, killed with, by, by the abusive father. And it's staggering. I don't remember the statistic, but it's it's a staggering number of these children who end up dead after going with daddy. 
daddy gets the prize and daddy doesn't treat it very well. Um, yeah, in, in the last 10 years, over 600 children have been murdered, um, mostly by abusive fathers, and this is in the context of contested custody cases. Recently, you know, we just had a father that murdered his children here in Colorado, murdered uh, two little girls, and mom was pregnant and murdered her too. And I think if we just could take a look at, you know, they say that, uh, I have to bring this forward, that a lot of uh, women are the ones that kill their children. They'll have the statistics out there stating that. But the women are spending more time mm-hmm. with the children, and it's not the same kind of thing as where there's abuse going on and the father gets custody and then kills the children and himself or the mother. Well, and traditionally, whenever a mother kills a child, it's seen as much more egregious than when a father kills a child. I mean, it's just our, oh, our you know, it's just how we perceive it. That's the way the it. Oh, are, too. Whatever a mother does yeah. is it has to be held to a much higher standard than whatever a father does. So it's, yeah. it's uh, definitely that situation going on. Yeah. Well, and what we see with these courts is it used to be the, the, the tender years doctrine. If you had like a preschool child, it was assumed that they would be better off with mom. That went the right. way of the dodo bird. That went the way of the dodo bird. And I mean, I, and I, I probably mentioned this to you before because, you know, these egregious things happen and they stick in my memory forever. But I was actually giving a lecture in, in one of the rural parts of our state. And this young woman, um, I think she was 18 maybe, uh, came up to me and uh, her boy, she, the father of her child, and she had just gone through a custody issue. And the judge ordered a two-week-old baby to spend a week with dad and a week with mom. I mean, that's crazy. Breathtaking. You know, I mean, and, and that's kind of the mantra now. I mean, is there anybody who doesn't believe breastfeeding is best for a child? Yeah, well, you can't, do, you can't do that one week on and one week off. You know, I forget and it's about part of that you know, bonding the, thing, too, Heather. Sorry, didn't mean to interrupt, but the bonding yeah, of that yeah, child with the mother is very, very important at that young of an age. Yeah. I mean, it's just writing a recipe for attachment disorder later in life. I mean, it, it's just. Mm-hmm. I, and, it, and it makes me wonder, do these judges, I mean, what are they thinking? And, and again, <laughs> I'm going to say something really sexist, but I hear it so often from female judges. You, wouldn't you think in your heart that female judges, That's especially tough. people who have been mothers, would, would react a little differently? But it seems like, no, uh, they, they don't react any differently. So that yeah, brings Some of the female to, judges are the worst. Yeah. Well, I'm yeah. glad you said it. I was going to, but then I thought it didn't sound good. So I'll let you say the stuff that doesn't sound good. No, really. I'm shocked. I'm um, shocked because I think if they're mothers and if they're judges and they're women, I would think they'd lean a little bit the other way, but they are some of the worst. I, The women judges have crucified so many women. I It just shocks me. I've never been able to get a hold of that completely, except for the fact that they're in that world and they are a judge and they take on those same uh, myths that you know judges take on. I just can't imagine, and it happens all the time. Yeah, it does. But let's get to something more practical here. We've got Lisa Ling and CNN out there spreading this stuff, and so there's a huge chunk of population, including decision makers, who now have reinforced the idea that the way they're doing it is, you know, is God's work. And what, what can we do? What are we going to do about this situation? There are studies that are, and yet they're not being, I mean, look at Dr. Folletti, Vincent Folletti was on the show and I asked him, 
you know, how come 30 years before this ACE study becomes, you know, uh, common and accepted? And he said, I don't know. I don't know. Why does it take so long um, for something like this to it's be accepted? It's social change. Well, it's glacial. It's glacial. And meanwhile, generations of right, children are being hurt. But I think it's social. It's a social change, and social change just takes long, long time. But the fact that children are being harmed, you would think that they would want to learn and be educated on all of the things that Barry brought up earlier, like the CDC with the Vincent Valetti study, uh, with ACEs, or be educated. And I think my side of it, too, that I think of is they don't really understand that a lot of these men that do this that are abusers tend to have you know, psychopath disorders, um, you know, sociopathic disorder or narcissists. And they really need that education too because they don't get it. When those women go into court and these men are those types of personality disorders going on, they don't see it, they don't get it, and they're just blown away by it. They just go exactly with what the father's saying as it's absolutely right. The Saunders study started by saying we now have a specialized body of research about domestic violence that can be used to better recognize domestic violence and to figure out better responses. And and that's true. And the courts still haven't thought of it in terms of domestic violence being a specialty. They don't treat domestic violence advocates as the experts in domestic violence. They're not looking for this specialized knowledge. And one of the interesting things in the pilot study by Joan Meyer, is that what the court seems to be doing is when they listen to expert witnesses that include the cottage industry and include a lot of people who are experts in mental illness and psychology but not domestic violence, they, these witnesses are allowed to give their opinions and they give subjective opinions which is the easiest thing in the world to do. They can say anything they want or anything that benefits their clients and not objective opinions, which would have to be supported by research and would require more knowledge and study, etc. And mm-hmm. I have never seen a judge make a distinction between a subjective opinion and an objective opinion. And so very often the court... You know, first of all, they, they just listen to whatever the evaluator says, and, you know, often the evaluator is wrong, and they're taking the subjective opinion. So if the evaluator is saying something that's, you know, frankly silly, and the judge is just accepting whatever the evaluator wants to say, they come up with these crazy decisions. What are the, you know, everybody always talks about education, education. We need to educate judges. We need to educate. But in my experience, people don't get educated unless they want to be educated. So what's the solution for this? I mean, we're coming out with more and more studies. If they, you know, if the the decision makers, you know, choose to do their research, they would find all sorts of things that are different from the way they're operating right now. 
we we see with this situation, you know, we try to get publicity, we try to get coverage so that the pop in the popular press so that people will get it, and then we get a ringer like this Lisa Ling thing. And so, what what do we do? What do we do? Just keep plugging away. Well, like Barry said, the training for judges needs to be done by advocate versus another judge training other judges. That is not working. Um, secondly. I think these these judges, you know, they don't, they only have to do, according to Colorado law, five hours a year. Five hours a year we cover this stuff, and 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 it doesn't have to be in this. They can, if they're on family court bench, they can take any avenue of five hours. That's not going to cover what needs to happen here. They're on the bench for two years and they rotate. So they don't really want to be there anyway. They're in family court. They, you know, they're dealing with these issues. They don't have to be there for two years. You know, believe me, they're making lots and lots of mistakes because of lack of training. Um, And not allowing people like Barry said or myself or whatever to come in as advocates that have lived through this, that understand the system, that understand what's going on, seeing how many thousands of these cases there are, to train them in the right way, you know, to absolutely bring them to the ground of what is happening, not just your neighbor having a black eye, now you understand domestic violence. Yeah, they do not, they're not getting it. And so I think that is crucial. Are we going to get it in the family courts? I, my, personally, I think that we need to have a separate court and it be, you know, where it's, there's a jury trial, where it's the judge is trained in domestic violence and child abuse and I, the sociopath, psychopath, narcissist, they get all that stuff. We aren't getting it. It's like what you have with the, the vets, they have a separate court. They're not doing it with the DA. They're not going to prosecute with the DA because they have to prove it beyond a reasonable doubt. If you have small children, it's very unlikely you're going to have that evidence. Lots of cases do have that evidence, and they still don't prosecute. We know that. Family court is totally going the opposite direction of what it should be going. These children are being placed with the abuser because, hey, it's parental alienation. They've got a way out. Yeah. Well, and plus we're being work. very equal and open. We're being very equal and open by by viewing both parents as equally good parents. Oh, I know it's so frustrating. Yeah, I, exactly. I and I and again, I've told the story many times. You got you guys got me on a really bad day. I'm I'm ranting and I'm repeating the same stories over and over. But I I went through the guardian ad litem training in in our county. And mm-hmm. the mantra that they had, and some of the, a couple of the pieces that they did on training about domestic violence was pretty good. A couple of it I thought sucked, um, but at least they addressed the issue. Um, but the mantra that they had was, you have to remember as a guardian ad litem that each parent has, and as you said, Marilee, 50-50. 50-50, you got to look at them as equally good parents. Well, No. What was the statistics you had, Barry, about how many, what percentage of these contested divorces are with abusers? Um, it's between 75 and 90 percent. Are, are not. Uh, are abusers. Yeah, with abusers. So we've got like maybe 10 percent of, the, of these custody cases that go to court, they're battled, and, and we've got that, that little uh, outlier there that well, is this yeah. abuse. Yeah. And how can if if you know that you're dealing in these cases with that outlier, where most of them have abuse in their background, how can you possibly purport to look at those cases and say, okay, we got a fifty-fifty chance that mom or dad would be equal? You know, you can't because you're dealing with people who already. Let me say something to what 
what you just said about the GAL, I read this report with this GAL here in Colorado who stated that if, say the father's name is Alan, if Alan is abusing this child, Alan, we need you to stop. We're not going to take that child away from you, even if you are. Mm -hmm. So just let us know if you're doing this or not. Can you imagine? Just so in of case, course, Alan's going to be are upfront about it. We're not going to do anything to you. It's, you're, you're okay. You can continue to abuse this child. Just know we're not going to take her away from you. I, I, I don't. Um, we, we treat children like we treat tables and cars. We treat Remember them the other side. You know, the, the mothers in most of these cases you know, almost all of these cases are the primary attachment figure. So when we deny the children a normal relationship with their primary attachment figure, that's an increased risk of depression, low self-esteem, and suicide when older. So why would you do that? And yet they're ignoring the need for the primary attachment figure. At the same time, they're ignoring the danger of the father. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And we're doing it you know because that case? we treat those children like, like a possession, like a table. I think it was uh, Forbes magazine just did a recent article on the case with uh, Holt, I think it is. He was a colonel in the Air Force, and she is a doctor, very high-up doctor. He graduated from Harvard, or she did. I mean, great schools, West Point, whatever. And supposedly... You know, he's abused these boys terribly, and it's out there. There's evidence of it, everything. And the father now has full custody of these little boys. And, I mean, I've seen the tapes. I've seen stuff that would just make your skin crawl, and they're coming home with black eyes, and they're still being forced to be with that abuser. And he, he, he's written saying that he was going to commit suicide. But yet he still gets the kids, and it went to the military first. The military shoved it out to the court, and the family court doesn't want to deal with it. And so this mother gone through all her money trying to get help and going to the right attorneys and the right people. She spent, I don't know, hundreds of thousands of dollars in legal fees, millions. And she's now without her children, calling me on Thanksgiving, sobbing. What do I do? What else can I do? I've done everything I can do. And I and I've talked to um, higher ups in Washington D.C. that know this case is going on, and you know um, I think it was uh, Debbie Feinstein is one of them that I talked to and said, "Come on, what are you doing here? How can are those boys safe? Do you think those boys are safe? Are they going to you know you don't know they're not going to be killed? We see it all the time. Why wouldn't you weigh on the safety of those boys when they're telling you what's happening to them? I just can't." I can't wrap my head around this anymore. I've seen it for 30 years, and I see the same thing coming through the pike and the same doing the same thing, and the judges doing the same thing, the military thrown out because he's a colonel, and the family court going, oh, no, we're not going to do anything on this. Man, it's a sad sight we have going on in our nation. And then we've got people like Lisa Lane coming in with giving information like this out and tearing us apart, just absolutely taking us back 20 to 30 years. I'd love to go on her show. I'd love to bring Barry and I and you, Heather, on her show and let her hear the real stories that are going on. Well, and you know I'm very research-based. I really am. I mean, I I appreciate research. I don't, you know, I, I, I value research. And with the research, the amount of research we have piling up, 
stuff out. How can people keep their heads in the sand and go, well, that's just some stray study? That No, we have study after study after study, both locally and nationally. We have a, a, a – how can you keep ignoring that research? That being said – And how does the general public ignore it, too? How does the general public – live with the fact that that's happening in that family over there or that family over there that's not happening in my family. Believe me, Barry's research, Joe, um, Joan Meyer's research, Saunders, all this, and we have it there for them to look at, and nobody wants to touch it because it's happening to that family. Believe me, it's touching everybody in society. All of society is paying for this damage in one way or another. Well, in, so it's all of Not immediately. If we're not paying immediately, no, we're right. paying it's because not immediate, but it does affect everybody. So how can you sit there yeah. and turn a blind eye to it? I think everybody exactly. that turns a blind eye to what's going on is just as bad as the people that are doing it. It's time to wake up. Okay. I think you're right. And I think that, you know, by, by making excuses that you are just being, looking at parents equally, I think that's ignoring research. Yes, look at healthy parents equally. But we're not talking healthy parents. We're talking abusive parents. And I think that we need to wake up and get our heads out of the clouds and start doing something to save the children. Okay, that's my, that's my, my final rant for today, I promise. Um, let's get back, though, to this Lisa Ling thing, because um, if I want to contact CNN or if I want to contact Lisa Ling and tell her about my deep and abiding disappointment in her as a journalist. I lied when I said that was my last rant. Um, <laughs> what, what do I do? I know that there's, uh, you know, some, some action going on there. Barry, where, where do I go if I want to CNN and let them know my thoughts about their coverage? Well, you know, Lisa Ling has a Facebook page, and there has been a very active discussion, and, you know, I've heard that she reads that stuff. I don't know if it's true. Uh, it, it was really un- unfortunate. You know, the abuser people have, you know, taken over and, you know, done all sorts of threats and attacks. And, you know, it was really obnoxious. They really showed who they are. And Nasty. Yes. Yeah. And then some. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, and, I get them when I post on the show. I, I get them. I mean, I just delete them. But, you know, I mean, th- th- these are nasty people. Um, nasty. They're nasty. very, very mean <laughs> and very vicious. They are. And um, you're just not dealing with normal people. That's all. You're not. Right. I mean, you know, there, there's, you know, uh, an email that you can send to Lisa Ling. I don't know if she reads it. Or, you know, the fact that she hasn't responded to anyone. And, you know, I think there's some people who, you know, with a lot of credibility that have um, contacted her, and there will be more. I, I'm aware of uh, a group of some of the leading experts, um, including mm-hmm. Mohanna, who are putting together a letter for Lisa. Um, but, you know, I, I don't know that she's ready to listen. I think it probably... Our letter was good, Barry. The letter that you and I wrote to her was a very good letter. And not to get a response. Right. I think we, yeah. what we need more to do is to look for other journalists. You know, you know what I really had wanted to do when I first saw it, um, there's a, um, a Sunday program on CNN. I think it's called Reliable Sources or something. And it looks at journalism 
And I thought it would have been perfect for them to, you know, look at it, you know, how poorly she did, but it's probably too late now. Yeah. Well, if if you, like me, are distressed by this, you can contact Lisa Ling. Uh, there's also, don't you have a link um, on, is it on your Facebook page, Barry? You have, a, or is it Merrily? You have a link. I have a, I printed this, as you can click this link to email CNN to express your concern. Where would folks find that link? I don't uh, have it on my Facebook page. Maybe Barry does. I don't know. No, I, I found it in the best way possible. Mer- Merrily gave it to me. <laughs> oh, I did. <laughs> well, CNN is out there. They're not hard to find. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's easy. And the other thing is go to Twitter, send her a message through Twitter. Go to CNN. They have a page there where you can go on CNN. And you have to go through a lot of phone calls to get through to that name number where you can leave a message to you have that's a story that you want them to go with. Wow, that, that's retro, yeah. an actual phone number. You know, wow. Um, yeah. yeah, but you get talking that it goes through this lots of procedures and then it just yeah. says, you can tell your story here. I would write. Okay. If I was anybody going about this, I would send letters. I'd write to her. I'd. She's not you know hard to find. Is I would write your local paper, whether it's the New York Times or the Woodenville Weekly, I would write your local paper and express your concern and your uh, point out the inaccuracies of this coverage. It may not be printed, but it yeah. might be, and every little bit helps. Yeah. Lisa, or Lisa, I've got Lisa Ling on the brain now. Uh, Marilee, Barry, thank you once again, both of you, for being so knowledgeable and coming on the show and putting up with my rants and, and little tantrums. And <laughs> next time, I promise I'll, uh, you know, I don't know, eat, drink my chai tea yeah, or something good. before the show, so I'm not so feisty. Um, but this is a, a topic that gets me feisty, and, and sometimes it's okay to be feisty about stuff that's pretty egregious. Thank you very much, Marilee. Thank you, Barry. Um, please come on the show again. And yeah, hopefully we'll have something. Yeah. Heather, can, Go ahead. Can, I, can I mention my new um, web update of my website? It's barrygoldstein.net, and be interested to see how people see it and if they think it's helpful for them. Okay. Marilee.com. And also uh, my book is Prosecuted But Not Silent, Courtroom Reform for Sexually Abused Children. Okay. Thank you. We're Thanks. out of time, and I appreciate both of you. Please come again and keep doing the work you're doing. 